Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the life and murder of Mother Laura Adorcor Kofi. They send her throughout the Deep South, Mississippi, Alabama, and everywhere she is going. She is attracting five and 10 and 15,000 visitors uh, and audience members. We'll discuss the history of the Florida State Census, Now we know that the federal census is also held every 10 years, but this would have been five years before or after the federal census. So it kind of helps us to fill in the gaps when we look at the population of the state of Florida. And we'll talk about auto racing on Daytona Beach. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Mother Laura Adorkor Kofi was assassinated on March 28, 1928 while giving a speech at Thompson's Hall in Miami. Many in the audience believed that Kofi was a divine prophet sent by God to liberate African Americans and black people around the world. Vibert White is author of an essay on Kofi in the book Africa in Florida, 500 Years of African Presence in the Sunshine State. She said that she had a revelation, a revelation to to liberate African American people, to take them on the right course um, back to the promised land, Africa, and to create an independent community, a cultural independent community. And, this, and this, is, this is in line with the other activities and movements of the time, because at the same time you had uh, the, uh, the more Science Temple movement of, New, of Newark in 1913. You had the UNIA, even though the Universal Negro Improvement Association by Marcus Garvey, even though it was a social political group, it also had a religious ingredient within that. Then, of course, you had the Nation of Islam that came along in the 1930s. So it was part of this whole movement of evangelical liberation. We can also call it um, revolutionary theology at the time. So therefore, she comes, she prophesizes a new movement, a new energy, and people became uh, immersed with her. So she became like a living Christ in Florida. Kofi came to America in the early 1920s from West Africa and quickly became part of the black nationalist movement. She joined Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, becoming a prominent spokesperson and national field director for the organization. At the time, the UNIA was much larger and more influential than other African-American support groups, such as the NAACP and the Urban League. She comes into the United States 
uh, through Ellis Island. Then she surfaces in New York, but she goes to Detroit. She goes to Chicago. She goes to Newark and several other areas. Then she goes back to Harlem, the, 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 the headquarters of the uh, UNIA. And she joins that group and becomes the national field director. Within months, she becomes the most popular figure within that movement, except for Marcus Garvey. He is still the number one. But they send her throughout the Deep South, Mississippi, Alabama, and everywhere she is going. She is attracting five and 10 and 15,000 visitors uh, and audience members, something that had never been seen before in the Deep South. Remember, Garvey primarily stayed in the Northeast. He only went to the South periodically, but she would go into the South. UNIA founder Marcus Garvey was very supportive of Kofi until he was imprisoned for mail fraud in 1925. While Garvey was in prison, Kofi's fame and influence grew. Enthusiastic crowds continued filling theaters and auditoriums in Florida and throughout the South to hear Kofi's passionate speeches about the opportunities available to black people if they repatriated to Africa. For many African Americans, it was the first time listening to someone from Africa. Secondly, she spoke about the greatness of Africa. Thirdly, she spoke about the, there was a movement from Africa to liberate the people here and that there was a divine relationship between the Africans, the East Blacks, and the Western Blacks, American, African Americans. And there was phenomenal. I mean, she spoke pride and strength. Even at that time, she was wearing kente cloth in the 1920s and speaking um, the languages of Ashante and Twi which African-Americans had never seen before. And what made her different than Garvey, Garvey never traveled to Africa. He always talked about it, but he never traveled. So with that type of uh, activity and that type of strength that she brought forth, it created what I call machismo among the Marcus Garvey men, jealousy, and the issue that Perhaps this woman was going to take over the movement. So after she visited him and they had a wonderful relationship, within weeks, he flipped the script on her and went after her. From his prison cell, Garvey attacked Kofi's credibility and encouraged his followers to abandon her. Some members of the UNIA began creating disturbances at Kofi's presentations, and she feared that her life was in danger at the hands of Garvey's inner circle. Kofi was based in Miami, which had a divided black community in the 1920s. Newly immigrated Caribbean and Bahamian blacks had a different perspective than African Americans who lived there previously. Over time, Kofi's message of black repatriation to Africa was well received until Marcus Garvey began attacking her. Vibert White. First, it was well received primarily among the African Americans, all right? Not among the Caribbean blacks at first and the Bahamians. Then later on, when the Bahamians and the Caribbean Americans began to receive backlash from white America because they were very, very entrepreneurial, they were very, very strong in, in moral beliefs and attitude, and they were not afraid to, to address white society, and to confront them in reference to racism and discrimination. They did not have an inferior, inferiority complex as many African Americans. But so when they started to be attacked, they said, listen, we better listen to this Laura uh, woman and let's start looking at Africa. Let's look at the UNIA and let's go back to Africa. Kofi relocated from Miami, where she felt threatened, to Jacksonville. She announced her split from the UNIA and established the African Universal Church and Commercial League. 
As leader of this new spiritual movement, she became known as Mother Kofi. The African Commercial League um, and the Universal Church was really modeled after the UNIA in many respects. The only difference was that it had a utopian connection to it, that is to create uh, space, um, acreage, small villages throughout Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, where African Americans could live in freedom, live in peace in their own African-style villages. That's different than what Marcus Garvey had, all right? And then she also stated that, listen, I know personally that Africans on the continent want to trade with African Americans. Marcus Garvey only spoke of it as a vision, all right, as, a, as an idea. But she spoke of it in a way that she knows personally. And that's why she ultimately set up her headquarters in Jacksonville. Because to her, Jacksonville was the closest American city to Ghana, to West Africa. So she said we can, it's easy to get there. Also should be note that Jacksonville in the 1920s was the strongest black community in the Deep South. I mean, they had more black colleges there than any other place. They had black business schools. There was, it was, by the 1930s, it was the, um, the black Hollywood of the time. So it was a very strong community. While living in West Africa, Kofi had a vision that she believed came directly from God, identifying her as a divine presence on earth. She came to believe that it was her spiritual calling to liberate black people around the world, particularly in America. Before her murder, she wrote a treatise called Sacred Teachings and Prophecies, in which she identified herself as a Christ-like figure associated with the Holy Trinity. Now keep in mind, she got this long time ago before even coming to America. I mean, she's from Kamasi, all right? She's from the Ashanti community. And the Ashanti community in West Africa and Ghana has some of the strongest religious beliefs of any people within that region. They believe that they are direct descendants from God, that the Garden of Eden is in Kamasi, all right, and that they have a divine presence to go back to repatriate all African people wherever they are. And she said with her vision and her father's talking to her, King Tutu, stated that there was a giant seat to come down from heaven, gold, and that when this seat came down, she was ordered to sit on it. All right. And that gave her the influence, the power and the direction to go and lead her people. At first, she thought it was just Africa. Then she thought it was just Europe. Then she came to realize that it was talking about the United States. On March 28, 1928, Mother Kofi returned to Miami to speak. Thousands gathered to hear her talk about the power of God to help Africans and black Americans. In an unusual move, she asked her bodyguards to sit down. That allowed a gunman to rush the stage and shoot Kofi in the back of the head, killing her. Mother Kofi became a religious martyr to her followers. Vibert White. She was speaking at Liberty Hall and, and, in Miami. Liberty Hall was actually controlled by the UNIA. And the two groups have been arguing and bickering as to who can have a meeting. And ultimately, they paired like the meeting. Uh, then they had to, uh, uh, the meeting someplace else. So ultimately, while she is speaking, it is, it is rumored that she is speaking about repatriation and unity and, uh, and the Old Testament and so forth. And she said that at this meeting, she wanted to talk to her people without having any gods, 
Well, the UNIA, through, with their men, they had a group called the African Legion. These were some bad brothers. I mean, they, 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 they trained militarily, and they were known uh, to, to intimidate people. So they took that, that opening to rush the stage and shot her. It took them over a month to bury her. I mean, when they left Miami, they had a funeral on West Palm Beach. They had a funeral in St. Augustine. They had a funeral in Daytona Beach and so on and so on until they ultimately got to Jacksonville to bury her. Mother Kofi had identified Eli Noyombolo as her successor in the African Universal Church. He continued and expanded the AUC. Absolutely. Now, he was a very interesting fellow. He was uh, a man from South Africa. He was connected to the Hosa as well as the Zulu community. And, if you, and for your uh, audience to know, the Zulu community was very instrumental with the development of the African National Congress, the ANC, that ultimately fought to destroy apartheid in South Africa. So he came with a revolutionary spirit, and he saw that the community that Laura had developed could be expanded, not just a religious group, but one to that focused on political religious ideology. And he did expand the group. They called him Little Bro. He was a, he was a brilliant guy, tremendous organizer, and very, very well-spoken. And he also stated, and they also stated, that uh, Laura Kofi uh, prophesied his coming. She always said, listen, I can't do any more. And her, her religious followers would ask, what do you mean you, you can't do anymore? You gave us so much. And she always said, almost like other prophets, there's one to come after me who will, who will fulfill my job. Today, people still make religious pilgrimages to Mother Kofi's mausoleum in Jacksonville's Old City Cemetery. The church that she started is still based in the Jacksonville area community of Adorcaville. Absolutely. However, they have independent communities in Mississippi and Alabama, um, as well as in Georgia. I've traveled to all of their churches, their communities. Now, they all look at Adorcaville as the spiritual center, but they have no real federation of working together in this light. Uh, what's taking place there in Adorcaville are the few remaining people are trying to preserve their history. They're being encroached upon by uh, corporate America uh, that want to buy up the areas and, and the city, uh, uh, trying to destroy it and take the area. So they're holding on, trying to uh, keep their community intact. And that's how I got involved with the organization. Vibert White is author of an essay on Mother Laura Adorkor Kofi in the book Africa in Florida, 500 Years of African Presence in the Sunshine State. He's also author of the book Inside the Nation of Islam.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. We hope you join us right here every week, but you can also find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and through your favorite podcast provider. When you visit myfloridahistory.org, you can also listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events like the FHS Annual Meeting and Symposium, and subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. You can't count on me like one, two, three, I'll be there. And I know when I need it, I can count on you like four, three, two, and you'll be there. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have some really interesting documents here relating to census taking in Florida. Tell us about the Florida State Census. Well, a census at its basic level is defined as a periodic enumeration of a given population. In this case, we're looking at the state of Florida. Florida became a state in 1845, and a provision of that first state constitution called for a uh, census to be conducted every 10 years beginning in 1845. So from 1845, we have our first state enumeration of of the population. Uh, Now, in 1845, Florida was, of course, a a relatively small state, but it's very interesting because we can tell a lot about the demographics of the state. And and even in these early censuses, we can get a lot of information about who was living in Florida and where they were living, and we can then kind of expand on that and learn a lot about the history of our state. Now, the 1845 population, again, was uh, relatively small, and it involved really the primary purpose was to divide up the state into legislative districts. So we have a brand new state. We need to figure out, just like we do today with the federal census, we need to figure out where populations exist, where larger populations exist, and then accurately uh, represent those populations in the state legislature. Uh, Now, we know that the federal census is also held every 10 years, but this would have been five years before or after the federal census. So it kind of helps us to fill in the gaps when we look at the population of the state of Florida. Well, Ben, you have here some original census documents from your archive that date from 1855 and 1905. What's in these documents? We're looking uh, first at the 1855 census of Florida. This was the second census conducted for the entire state. Now, remember in 1855, Florida was a slave state. Slavery was still legal, and a large portion of the population was enslaved. They were, however, still counted in this census. Now, of the original handwritten documents it would have been conducted by the census takers, only one county still exists, and that's Marion County. So for Marion County, we have an itemized uh, role of everyone that was living within the county. Other than that, the only thing we have that exists today is what we're looking at now. And this is actually the journal of the proceedings of the Florida House of Representatives. At the very end of, of these proceedings, as part of the appendix, the last four pages of the appendix, we have the information about the census submitted to the state legislature. So if you look at just the total numbers, and it's kind of hard to imagine, but the entire state of Florida, including the entire slave population, only totaled 110,850 individuals. Now, to give you a little perspective, the greater Miami metropolitan area now totals over 5 million people. Uh, So the entire peninsula of Florida was just over 100,000 people. Uh, Now, of that population, 49,138 individuals were enslaved. 
60,550 people were considered part of the white population. And 700, interestingly enough, 774 people were what they considered, quote, free people of color. Uh, And now that's kind of interesting because it gets into kind of the argument of how you define race, especially in 19th century Florida. Who was considered a person of color? Now, that could have been an individual who was trading uh, from Cuba, who was uh, living in Monroe County in Key West and was actually of Hispanic descent, but may have been darker colored, then would have been considered of African descent or of colored descent. So they were considered a free person of color. So there's a lot of kind of granularity there that we can look at. Now, outside of just our total enumerations, we don't have a lot of granularity until we get to the 1905 census. So here we are 50 years later. And if we look, this uh, compendium is much larger. And we have a lot of other detailed tables. If we open up the book, we'll just take a look at a few of them. One that I found kind of interesting, this is table number 19. And it's persons 100 years old and over by race and sex in the counties with which they reside. Now, in Alachua County, you had a a total of three people who were over 100 years old, or at least they claimed to be uh, 100 years old, and that information was submitted by the census taker. But it's kind of interesting. Uh, We look at uh, Jefferson County. We have six individuals in 1905 who were over 100 years old. Now, in Alachua County, there's a small note here, and it says, there is also one Indian female 121 years old. Now, whether that was accurate, again, is hard to tell, but uh, and, and who that person was, we don't know because the original handwritten documents from 1905 have since disappeared. Uh, but if we also flip over to uh, mortuary rates, we look at Duval County, which is the city of Jacksonville. You had 799 people who died during this year of 1905. That's a 16.1% death rate, higher than any other county. Now, what can we get from that number? Jacksonville was a fairly large city in 1905, so you have a lot of industrial-related accidents. You had a lot of violent crimes committed that wouldn't have been committed in other sparsely populated rural areas throughout the county. Now, if we also look at total populations according to the country of birth, which this 1905 census actually includes, we look at Hillsborough County, which includes the city of Tampa. There were over 5,000 people who were uh, native-born Cubans living in Hillsborough County. Uh, there were close to 3,000 Italian-born people living in Hillsborough County. Now, just to give you some perspective, in Escambia County, there are only 10 people of Cuban descent living in the entire county of Escambia. So what does that tell us about Hillsborough? Well, that gives a reflection of folks who were working in the cigar industry, and they all would have been mostly of foreign descent working in that industry. So we can really parse out a lot of interesting information and then compare these populations, say, to 50 years ago. And you can really kind of see the the demographic shifts as people moved away from middle Florida, started occupying areas in southern Florida uh, as the population increased into the 20th century. Yeah, a lot of great information here. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Auto racing is very popular today in Daytona Beach. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, the sport has been around for quite some time in Florida. It was found that um, there was a little bit too much development along the oceanfront. And, they're, you know, you're running almost 300 miles an hour in people's backyards. So the, uh, the land speed record folks decided, well, I think maybe we ought to find a new venue. And that's when they moved to the Bonneville Salt Flats out in Utah. So um, here Daytona Beach had this incredible 30-plus year heritage of speed. 
That was Buzz McKim, who is the historian at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He spoke to me about early auto racing in Volusia County. At the turn of the 20th century, international auto racing was in its infancy, and people came from around the world to participate and witness men driving at top speeds to break the land speed record. McKim tells me why Daytona Beach was selected as a site for these activities. The beach in the Daytona Ormond area was 26 miles long, 500 feet wide, and in the early part of the century, the automobile was kind of a newfangled toy of the rich. And they would come every winter for what they call the winter season from up north. Most of them were industrialists. They would stay at the Ormond Hotel. And they loved the beach because that was the only place that they could run their new toys wide open. At the time, in 1903, there was only 150 miles of paved road in the entire country. And most of that was around metropolitan areas. So there was really no place that they could get out there and see what their car could do. And, you know, the old saying was the the first race occurred when the second car was built. (laughs) So uh, the, the Daytona Beach area lent itself to speed trials. Buzz McCam explains the evolution of the chase for the land speed record during this time. Right from the beginning, like in uh, 1904, uh, William K. Vanderbilt, who was kind of like the John F. Kennedy Jr. of his time, uh, you know, the, the paparazzi followed him wherever he went. Well, he brought his Mercedes to Ormond and set a world land speed record of 92 miles an hour, and that speed was unheard of, and he was very daring and dashing and rich, and um, that really brought the national attention to the Daytona-Ormond Beach area, and uh, then within another year or two, you started having foreign manufacturers bringing their cars over, the Lancias and the Duracs and people like that, and uh, it just became the haven for automotive competition as far as the ultimate speed record. And records continued to be uh, set on Daytona Beach through 1935 with Malcolm Campbell when he ran 276 miles an hour. This was not yet the time of NASCAR, so drivers and their automobiles were not decked out with the safety and equipment that you see in today's professional races all those guys ran was just that that leather cap with the uh, the goggles and those were glass lenses too so if anything hit the lenses then uh, you know you had glass in your eyes so you know safety was not a high priority in racing back in those days sir henry seagrave who came to daytona in 1927 he became the first driver to crack the 200 mile an hour barrier he was an englishman and he was the first driver to wear a helmet as we know it today and uh, up until, you know, oh, probably the late 30s, um, he was about the only guy that was wearing a helmet. Believe it or not, throughout this time, there were never calls to protect the safety of drivers in professional racing until the 1950s. The first time there were ever really outcries came about in 1955 when uh, a Mercedes went into the crowd at Le Mans, France, and uh, killed about 80 people. And uh, there was, uh, uh, I mean, there were senators that wanted to outlaw auto racing in America. And the American Automobile Association pulled its sanctioning from uh, from any auto races. And they had been sanctioning races since 1903. So that's when people really started paying attention to safety, you know, not only for the driver's sake, but for the spectator's sake also. That was Buzz McKim. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it online 
and in iTunes. I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook, and subscribe to Florida Frontiers as a podcast. Check your local public television schedule for the TV series Florida Frontiers, airing on great PBS affiliates around the state. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.